You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production. Welcome to episode five of the Early Doors Football Podcast. And this week, our special guests include John Salako and Nikki Forster. But first, it's time for... Highlight of the Week. And we've got a few contenders this week, including Zlatan Ibrahimovic becoming Serie A's oldest foreign goalscorer, just three weeks shy of his 40th birthday. Also, Edward's two goals for Crystal Palace on his debut, and Romelu Lukaku's two goals at Stamford Bridge for Chelsea. But it's a highlight of the week hat-trick for this man. So take it away again, Sky Sports. Manchester United looking for a big finish to this half, and that took a deflection. Ronaldo! He only does Hollywood scripts! One of the greatest to ever grace this famous pitch has returned to add to his legend. Old Trappen rises up. The phenomenon that is Cristiano Ronaldo lives on at Old Trafford. Yes, Cristiano Ronaldo's goal-scoring return to Old Trafford is our... Highlight of the week. And our first guest this evening is John Salako. John, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. Great to see you. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. And I hear you've, uh, you've been playing golf today. How did you get on? Yeah, so I played in a Bobby Moore Foundational um, Golf Day, Stephanie Moore. Every, you know what? This, it's so brilliant. It's bowel cancer. So important to, to, for men to and do check yourselves and um, regularly check yourselves. But, you know, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, you know, I sat with John Moncur, Teddy Sheridan. Oh, God, the list is endless. But Tony Gale and Tony Cotty, who host the day, were absolutely sensational. Great lads that I obviously worked with at Sky um, for many years. And, it's you know, these golf days are great because you catch up with uh, players you don't see. I don't know, you know, obviously, Tom, in the, in the TV and film industry, you know, you, you don't see people. Everyone thinks you're all friends. But it's days like these you do catch up with. And it's great to see some of the, the legends of the game, Graham Roberts and... Oh God, Alan Kerbishley. I, you know, I, there were so many names there. It's fantastic, and hopefully they raised lots of money. Great stuff, and um, great win for your former club, Crystal Palace, at the weekend. And I just wanted to ask you about Patrick Vieira. Obviously, fantastic player, legend for for Arsenal, and he's got some management experience prior to to joining Palace. Um, how do you see him getting on as a manager? At, at Palace in particular and, and sort of into the future as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, Patrick Vieira is right up there for me in the pantheons of great, of the greats. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an Arsenal, Arsenal sympathiser, you know, Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, all those guys for me sit in a very, very special place. But when they become managers, you kind of take that hat off and you've got to judge them as managers. And what I hope that Patrick's going to do Although he's managed in America, New York, and he's always managed in, in uh, France, what he's got to do is he's got to come into the Premier League and bring Patrick Vieira that played 
to in the Premier League and he's got to bring that experience and he's got to win games and he's got to set up teams and understand players and show his knowledge and his acumen of, you know, how the game needs to work and what he needs to do to be a good manager. Because there will be, you know, it's, it's the most brutal and it's the most cutthroat business as being a manager in the Premier League. You know, Ronald, you know, sorry, is it Frank Boer came and he it beat him up. He's Ajax, he's a legend, he's a god. So whatever you've done doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? In a sense where unless you can transfer that to being a manager, what you were as a player doesn't matter. I mean, so, but he's got everyone to lean on because what France have done with Deschamps winning the European Championships, winning the World Cups, and the people he knows, he's got, and obviously working with Arsene Wenger, he's got to lean on all the people and then really take all that information and put it together and become Patrick Vieira, the manager. Now, what I love about that is he's taken a job that's a tough job in South London at Palace with a very distinct identity. You know, it's not, you know, he, he's not, this isn't big time, you know, compared to the big boys. Palace, you know, as long as we stay in the Premier League every year, that's all we, we want. You know, the stadium needs redoing, you know, the training ground is getting upgraded and we're, we're batting way above, way above staying in the Premier League. So what Patrick's got to get that mentality of build Palace up, get him into a stable place, show that he's a good manager, he's learning, and then hopefully get, you know, down the line, four or five years' time, get a big job, which hopefully is destined to do, because what I've seen so far is incredible. And what he's done, sorry, um, is he's getting hold of the players. So Wilfred Zahar, who is... You know, he's sort of a bit of a loose cannon. Is he going to move? Is he not going to move? Is everyone going to pay 70 million for him? Are they not going to pay 70 million? Where does he play? How good is he? Does he really understand football? Patrick's come in and gone, listen, listen to me. I'll make you a good player. I'll make you a good player, but you need to listen to me. You need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to be this way. And Wilfred, if he listens, and what I saw against Tottenham, he's listening. But, but Vieira's got the presence, the confidence to confront him and go, Wilf, I'm a World Cup winner. I'm, I'm you know, Arsenal, I'm, you need to listen to me and I'll make you better. I'll make you a good player. And that's what I like about him. And that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing good things about Patrick Vieira going in there, stamp his authority, but in a nice way, in a calm. He's not going in the same, you know, he's, 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 he's got wonderful um, demeanor. You know, he, he's been very humble which is very important in football. You know, once you get too above yourself and carried away and you, you lose the players. And, what, you know, we all know if you lose the dressing room, they don't want to play for you. And that is the little fine margins that makes the difference. John, I think can I ask you, John, John, can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm currently in South Africa now, um, but I know that um, his assistant that he took, saying Roberts, you know, how is he How is he fitting in there? Because he's got a very, very good reputation within uh, uh, CAF, um, which is the African Football Association here. And, you know, before he, le he left to join Patrick, he was actually coach educator for CAF for the pro licence. I think he was doing one in either Morocco or it might have been Tunisia, one of those two countries. And then he got this job opportunity with Patrick. How is he, how's he settling in there? 
Yes, yeah, so I've heard a little bit about him, but what it is, is that I think he does the technical side of it with Patrick. I think when, and this is the interesting side of it, when you're a top, top player, I think it's hard to be a really great coach. And Patrick has such a wonderful, illustrious career for so long. He didn't really, and, and this is what I love about it, he he didn't really get to learn too much about the game. So a lot of the Jose Mourinho's, your Arsene Wenger's, when you look at a lot of these top managers, they didn't have a massive, even Klopp was not a great player. You know, they, but they, they were thinking about coaching. They were thinking about the game, what can make me a better player? So that is what he's going to bring to Patrick. He's going to bring that insight of coaching players and that outside knowledge. And, and, and to be honest, it's an incredibly insightful appointment by Vieira because he knows he needs that. He needs someone to bring that, someone who can bring him. And, and if he leans on that, then he's going to be successful because he's got to know what his strengths are and what Zane's um, strengths are. So if, if they can tie that together, and that, that's the wonderful dynamic. So he's got, you know, Sean Derry and he's got Dean Kiley and he's got some people who know Palace as well. Um, but the important thing is going to be tactically the setup what you want to do. But most of all, the most important thing you do is you bring someone you can trust and someone who will implement your ideas, but give you input into what can make that better. And you've got to be able to listen. And I think from what I'm understanding is that Patrick is leaning on him and he is listening to him. Good, good. I like that. I like that. John, you said, um, it's interesting, you're talking, we sort of look at Patrick you know, he's four or five years a manager. Yeah. He has, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that about, you know, great players don't make great managers or don't necessarily make great managers. And the number one reason for that is that great players don't think they need to do anything to be great managers. So they go and do their badges under duress. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I don't have to learn this stuff. I, you know, I've played 50, 100 times from my country. You know, I don't think Patrick's cut like that. Patrick goes and does what he needs to do. Do you know what I mean? And uh, he is, uh, as well as kind of doing his, his coaching qualifications, you know, we've got to bear in mind, he's done, what, what was it, kind of two and a half seasons in, in America, season and a half in, in Liga. And what he's done, and which he didn't mention, what's remarkable, I mean, number one, great result at the weekend. Actually, the result the previous weekend, if anything, was better. To go to go behind twice yeah. to West Ham, who've been flying for twelve months, and get a draw there was absolutely <clears throat> that afternoon. I thought, you know, I think Paddy might be all right here, but what he's also had to do, as well as everything else, is kind of put a new team together. Palace mm -hmm. had so many people out of contract, so many people have left, and he's brought so many in. And you look, and you think, and I mean, look, the lad Edouard. If he scores 20 goals this season, then Palace will be absolutely fine. Whatever else is happening on the pitch, because yeah. they'll be organised. They'll be fine. It's, you know, it's been about getting goals. Do you know what I mean? It, it, that's been the... And he looks like... You couldn't have asked for more, really. I think people thought they'd died... The, the Holmesdale thought they'd died and gone to heaven when a, a lad comes <laughs> off the bench and scores. I mean, I think they waited about a year to see Christian Benteke <laughs> score that many goals. And, you know, he, Edward's done it in. But you know what I mean? He's, he's a big yeah. job. You're absolutely right. And it is a particular culture. 
Patrick will have absolutely no problem getting that. And he gets the culture of English football. He understands the culture of English football because he played in it for so long. The, for me, the key is is recruitment. It's always recruitment. Yeah. And he looks like, you know, the, the boy Gallagher from Chelsea. That's a great spot. That's He could, between him and a, and a striker who could score 20 goals, you go, well, that's pretty much job done. You know what I mean? It's, he's, he's made a great start. Do you know what? Everything you're saying, I totally understand. And yeah, it's, it's brilliant what you're saying because that is exactly what Palace have to do is because what Palace have been is Holloway, is Pulis, is Allardyce, is Pardew, is this same English-British manager, this same pragmatic, organised, stable, will keep us in a division manager. And what Patrick has done is, and I love what he's done because he's, he's different to, and what annoys me about modern players is they, they, you know, for want of a better saying, I don't know if I can say this, but they're up their own asses. They, 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 they think they're better than doing their badges, doing their coaching and, and earning the right to learn the game, to learn the philosophy of the game, to grow as a coach, to, to get that mentality and that's what Patrick's done. He's gone and spent time in New York. He's gone and spent time in France. And he's, he's managed 140 games abroad, you know, and he's, he, he's learned what his style should be, what his strengths are, he's learned how the players are in that dressing room. It's so important because players become just so powerful and, you know, so real, you know, um, they're a real problem to deal with. And they're real, you know, a lot of the personalities. So he... There's so much to deal with, 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 with the chairman, with the press, with the agents, and then you've got the players and then your coaches and your fans. So you, as a manager, you've got a lot of stuff to deal with that you've got to be able to process that and pigeonhole all that stuff and then just be a rounded, sensible person who come. And he just looks calm. He looks as though he's in the right place at the right time. And what he's had is there's a clear out of some dead wood and he's brought in some great players. Joe Tim Anderson, you know, Gaye from... From, from Chelsea, yeah, yeah. you know, Mitchell. And then he's brought, as you say, Conor Gallagher looks a player. He is one, although he's on there alone, but he's got attitude. He's he's intelligent. He looks as a, and Edward, second time scores a goal, fourth time scores another goal. It's like dreamland. You know, Benteke couldn't hit a cow's heart with a banjo. You know, it's like, you know, we've been tearing our hair out for the last three years with, with, with Benteke, but he was a superstar. He was an absolute beast. But if they can all work with that, you know, what he'll be working on is that competitive edge in that, in, in that camp. So he wants Benteke to play, AU to want to play. Eduard's come in and now shaking it up. Go, well, I've got this. And then he's got Elise who looks a player from Reading. He's going to be, love him. You know, he's got to step up injuries. And then obviously... You know, when you look at the, the dynamics, you've still got MacArthur, Milivojevic and Kiate, who are, you know, the, the, the real heartbeat because they are the engine room and they are the, they're the ones who earn the right to win games, which is what sort of Roy Hodgson, whole, you know, is. But I think we could be more than that. And I'll tell you what, you know, if Zahar just relaxes and believes in Patrick, I think he's got the presence, the you know, and enough sort of ability, you know, some about him to be able to go, do you know what? I can make you a superstar. And I think that's what 
we needed as, as Palace to move on to the next level because, you know, at the moment, Palace have been sort of like a, can we stay upside? Yeah, and yeah. I think, could be the manager, and he looks like the manager, who could take Palace into that mid-table bracket of... No, but he does still he does still have to keep him up though, you know, and it, it's it's a big it's a difficult league to drop out of. You know, you look at I mean, I think Brentford were the best wheel in the world. I'm talking about your form, former clubs. I mean, Brentford are really gonna have their work cut out to stay in the division. Yep. They'll be sensible, so they may be able to go down and come back up. But you know, you look at what happened to Reading, John. Reading were part yeah. of the furniture in the Premier League. Bad season, go down. There's absolutely no danger of them coming back up anytime soon. Yeah. You mean you you drop down once the parachute payments go? You've had it. You've had it. It's a graveyard. If you look at that championship, I look at the League One. I look at the big clubs that yeah. I grew up with. But you know the championship is a graveyard, and um, you know Reading great infrastructure. You know what they did with Medeski. Steve Cobble came in, and that that young side and came up and then and then went but there's so many clubs it's so hard Tom and what this is the whole point you need to stay in the Premier League the Premier League is the magic circle the money and everything that comes along with it you need to stay in there but it's so hard so I mean for me I still see Norwich Brentford massively struggling whether Southampton Newcastle Burnley are going to get dragged into that Watford sorry Watford as well that for me is the bottom five and Listen, what you need to do is you need to come up, be pragmatic, don't over, don't overspend, don't give stupid contracts out. And if you do go down, you're stronger to come back up. Absolutely, because that, the ones who aren't sensible are the ones you're talking about in League One, Sunderland, Ipswich, well, Portsmouth, Fulham. those clubs. Fulham spent, Fulham spent 100 million, spent 100 million on the wrong players. You know, it's easy to spend money and spend too much money. The, the, the transfers, the, the inflation of the transfer fees is ridiculous. It, it, it breaks my heart to see that in football because football's sort of gone away from the general public and the fans. And I think hopefully what we've learned over this pandemic is that it is all about the fans. It is all about the heart of the club and about Super League. You know, it's it, it, this is what people live and, and breathe and they want to see people going out there and playing for the shirt and playing for the club and not playing for money, not like your Ozil's or, you know, it's it, it's just sad to see so many of these players. I want to see a Ronaldo, what a signing that was. I want to see players that want to play, want to be, um, want to excite people, get them off their seats and know and appreciate what it means to fans and to everyone around the world. So look, the Premier League is the biggest thing ever. And hey, how wonderful is it to see Ronaldo back and Edouard scoring goals and, Antonio and, and everyone smashing it and, you know, Liverpool are back and, you know, man, you know, um, Chelsea, Lukaku, it, it's, it's fantastic. It, it, it's, you know, I'm so excited about the Premier League this year. Right, John, but you, you know that you're talking about recruitment, about Fulham. Who makes these players? Who signs these players? Who brings these players into Fulham? And if you look at Reading's recruitment this year, they, you know, the, 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 the fans who are the heart and soul of football, they're not happy with the recruitment that Reading have made. And then you said about the top, the, the, the five teams, the Bournemouth, uh, Brentford's, Watford's, Norwich City, maybe Southampton, Burnley, they're going to be fighting again in that bottom relegation scrap. You know, it's, how do you change that mindset? You've just said recruitment at Crystal Palace is working right now and hopefully yeah. it continues. Patrick, I mean, the recruitment side of it is very, very 
very important, important for for sustain to sustainability and to keep that premiership status. It's the most important, Dylan. It's the number no. one. Yeah, it's no, the it number has, one. So for Crystal Palace, you know, we've got the richest catchment area in the world. You know, that South London area is so rich in talent because it's got young, uh, poor, um, ethnic you know, English kids that are hungry. You need kids hungry. In Man City, I used to work, when I was on the 13s manager at Crystal Palace, my assistant is now head of scouting for London, for Man City. So everyone is in South London, in London, scouting London and the world for new talent. So yeah, you, 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 your sports, you know, sorry, your director of football, he's the one that has to put a team together and you, you go and you scout the world and you, you, you go and put all these young players and you get a scouting team that goes out and looks throughout Europe, throughout the country and identifies players and you sign them. And, you know, I'm not going to go into how Man City and Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea or, you know, end up taking players from London. But I'm telling you now, London is the hotbed of, and it will, will grow of, of, of talent. And, you know, I've been saying for years, Palace, Nita, your Victor Moses, your Routledges, you know, your Zahas, they all come from looking at a park. Some, you know, oh, wow, he looks, you know, let's get him in. Let's sign him. And, and Palace can't go out and spend 60, 70, 80 million. They need to bring these players in and then sell them on. Yeah. So it's all about recruitment. Well, a friend of ours, Simon Osborne, he's doing down in, you know, Bromley area. He does a bit of coaching two, three times a week with under 10s, under 11s, under 12s. You know, and, and 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 that's on top of his job that he's got, and and that's like I say, you get players, ex-players involved in that kind of development. They're, they're going to learn from from a midfielder like him that can, you know, maybe push them to the next level, maybe take them to the next level. John played with Simon, top player, fantastic, yeah. you know, talented. No, but very technical, technically talented player, good lad. You're absolutely right. I'm not being funny, and. Ex players, ex pros should be working in the game, and they should be on a on a on a program. But it isn't. It, you know, they're badly treated. They, you know, they're underpaid. They're undervalued, and and they don't really have. Do you know what? Like a, a conveyor belt to to go any higher because you're pigeonholed into this youth role, and it's very hard to 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 progress. So you know, a lot of lads get disillusioned with it and move on. And and to be fair to him, I think it's, it's down to when I was. Under 16 coach, I mean, I had an assistant. He had a fencing company and, and working with me, but he loved the game. And the, the pro game seems to love, not be, I don't want to be disrespectful to you, but it's a perfect combination. You need that hardworking guy who loves his football, knows his football, and you need an ex-pro. You need someone to be able to say to the lads, this is right, this is wrong, this is what you should be doing, this is what you shouldn't be doing, this is what happened to me, this is how it works. You do need that. You need the expos in the game, but they should be valued. And for me, they're not. John, if, um, if, Simon, Simon, Dylan, if Simon Osborne's working down in Bromley, I'm, I'm not being funny, but after what happened this weekend, he should be looking for tennis players, not football. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him that, Tom. I'll tell him. Oh, my God. One of the best sporting I've ever seen. I mean, God, I love that girl. And I wish her all the best because I'll tell you what, Tom. One of the hardest things to deal with in life, and you'll know this, is success. And when it comes early and you're young, wow. Do you know what? And that's a lot of lads find it hard. When they sign, they get money. Yeah. They get money too early. They haven't done anything. They haven't earned the right to get that money, but they don't. They want to keep them out of the clutches of other. 
The players have got to go out on loan and play football. I went down to watch under-23s Palace against Sutton in this, oh, what is it called? The pizza. Yeah, yeah, uh, the Papa John's. Yeah, it's under-21s now, you know. It's under-21s. Yeah, 21s. Oh, yeah. They're soft. They're, they're like babies. They're kids. It's like yeah. Sutton. It's men be boys. What am I watching? Yeah. Like, well, it is literally. I was, playing in the, I was playing in the reserves. You know, you were getting kicked up in the air because you were Larry, you know, you, you were having yourself and the pros were like, we're not having, you know, you played men's football. What is it now? You know, you, I'm watching 20, 18, 19, 20 year olds play against Sutton and it's men be boys. And, and no, I, think, I went down to see, um, I went down the county ground, saw Swindon against, um, Swindon against Arsenal under 21s last week. It's true that the, the harsh truth is once they get past under 18s, where actually it's all about being competitive, they go into football that's actually not competitive. In fact, those Papa John's games, I know people kind of scoff at it, but that's the most competitive football those boys will play all year. And it'll only be three or four games. It's a complete it's waste crucial. of time, John. Under 23's football is a complete waste of time. Tom, you go there and you, do you know what? I used to play against your Carl Shortens, your Bromleys, your Sartons. You know, your Dulwich Hamlets, and I tell you, your manager would say to you, These lads want your job. They think, yeah, you're, yeah. They think you're weak. These lads are on a building site, they're scaffolders, you know, they're working in shops, they're mechanics. They want your job. They look at you and you've got what they want. Are you hungry enough to want it enough? And you see them play. And the truth is, no, they don't because they're cosseted, they're spoiled. They, you know, see, you know, these lads should be playing men's football by 18. I went to Swansea on loan. I said, David Beckham went to Preston. Ryan Giggs went out. Everyone used to go out on loan. When it was ready and you wanted to play, go out and play. You come back, you're better. Conor Gallagher is coming to Palace. He's going to smash it. Right mentality. Grow up. You're playing every week. He's going to be start. So, you know. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be fair, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much good the loan system generally does English football. It's sort of it's another way of kind of the haves and have nots get further and further apart. But one of the pleasures of watching football in League One and League Two, particularly, obviously, Championship as well, is to go and watch lone players and go, oh, we've got one there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I watched Cheltenham. We took a lad from Leicester last season, Callum Wright. Yeah. He was part of the team that won League Two. He's gone back to Leicester and gone, I want to go back to Cheltenham for another year. And he's now gone, you know, up a, up a year. Yeah. And, and if, if, if a player is technically good enough to be playing for a Premier League football club, if a player is technically good enough to be playing for a Premier League's under-23 team, then if you see them go to a club in League One and League Two and love it, you know you've got a player. Because yeah. that is where they'll learn all the other stuff. They're playing yeah. against people who, whose mortgages are on the line every Saturday afternoon. You know what I'm saying? The design Harry, of if, if they can go talent. and fit with that, then you've got a player. John, before you go, Matt, I, I, had a, I had a beer with Matt Fish last night. Oh, no way. Yeah, he, he tells me, he says, what a great guy. Came to Charlton, his first game, pre-season training. We're doing this jog around the field. Off John Salako goes like a bloody rabbit. And we're all thinking, is he having a laugh here? We've got to catch him up now. <laughs> um, Mark Fish wasn't happy with you then. <laughs> oh, do you know what, Fishy? What a top, top 
fantastic guy. And Sean Bartlett, who was there, you know, um, did, you know, I didn't play much at Charlton, so it wasn't, but the lads were phenomenal. Fishy was yeah. um, a world-class player. He was a, a real proper talent. But do you know what? I mean, I must admit, I, you know, pre-season, I would always run and, you know, get fit, ready for pre-season. And, I, you know, I wanted to go there and get in the side and be fit. And, yeah, probably when I went there, the lads must have been thinking, oh. They weren't happy. <laughs> they were not happy. They weren't happy. <laughs> no, 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 good times, good times. Oh, say hello to him. Say hello to me. He's got, I think Mark Fish has got one of the best stories I ever heard. So he turned up late for training. And he says to Alan Kirbishley and Keith Peacock, he says, oh, I couldn't get out of my gates. My electric gates are broken down and I couldn't get out. It's the best excuse for being late for training I've ever heard. Oh, John, John, I've got one. I've you got, got one of those Allen keys. You get... I've, I gave Martin Keown the lift down. He forgot the code for his gate and ended up having to break into his own house, climb over the gate. You can release your gate, but no, it was funny. Fishy was, um, Jimmy, what's an electric gate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us about it. <laughs> oh, oh. Dear. It's, it's, it's bad, isn't it? I mean, but Fishy took, took Charlton to another level. That was a good side, and he was, he was a Rolls Royce, the boy. He was, um, he was a good player. Very All right, John. Well, th well, thanks ever so much. Really appreciate you being on. And uh, cheers, guys. Thank you. Great to see you. See you soon, John. And now, from one former Reading player to another, Nicky Forster. And, and Nicky, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. You were a striker at Gillingham, Brentford, Birmingham City, Ipswich, Hull, and Brighton. But it was a Reading, where you scored the most goals for a club you played for, 60 goals, I think it was for Reading. What do you remember about your time there? Well, funny, funny enough, um, recently I bumped into two of my former uh, Reading managers in uh, Steve Koppel and Alan Pardew. And do you know what? Both of those are in my top three as the best managers that I managed or I played, sorry, under. And the other being Joe Royal. But do you know what? Those two were, were absolutely fundamental and very influential on my career. And the thing I remember about my time at Reading, obviously I joined under Tommy Burns and unfortunately the club um, wasn't doing so well at the time and Tommy lost his, his job and sadly no longer with us. But Pards came in and just created a real change and, and affected um, uh, such a change in the club and just brought us, you know, a unity about the place and a style of football that was, and we had that mantra, I don't know if you remember on our t-shirts, tenacity, spirit and flair. And, and we were a team that in terms of, um, in terms of personnel were probably playing above our average, certainly when we got into the championship and into the, um, into the, into the playoffs of the championship where we narrowly missed out to Wolves. Um, but it, it just, the whole thing at Reading reminds me of a, a real sort of formative time. And I, I, I don't think it's a, an understatement to say that I think some of Reading's success now and them going up to the Premier League was built on that change that Pards and Steve Koppel and Martin Allen, to be fair, um, brought in and instilled in the club. And, and similar 
type of story at Brentford. Obviously, I, I watched the game on, um, you know, their first Premier League game back right back at the start of the season against Arsenal, the 2-0 win. And a similar type of story in that, I think in, was it two spells at Brentford, you scored 40 goals. And again, you know, they've, they've been all through the divisions and getting up to the, the Premier League and that, that first win on the opening day of the season was a culmination of, of all that work that went beforehand. What, what, was your, what do you remember from your, your two spells at, at Brentford? Well, there was such a long time apart. One was at the start of my career and one was at the end. So they're, they're over a decade apart. But you know, Brentford is a club that has been managed and, and developed, certainly by Matthew Benham, the owner, really well. And I know there's a lot of talk about this money ball approach where he looks at players and he takes things um, via statistics. But they've managed the club well. You know, they've moved out into a new stadium and, and they've done it really well. There's no coincidence that Sky chose that game for the first game of the Premier League season as you suggested because they could see an upset there you know Arsenal are a team that are, are perhaps not at their best at the moment and Brentford are on the team on the you know on the up in the ascendancy and it, it certainly showed it on the night but um, yeah I mean a, a lot of my clubs um, um, Hull uh, they uh, they got up into the top flight so did Brighton Brighton's still there you know so in, in lots of ways, that was a really good signing mark for clubs because when I left, clubs went up and got promoted. So, um, you know, I should have got more moves, really, over my career. <laughs> well, you, you, as I said before, you scored your fair share of goals. I think it was 40 at Brighton as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was the sort of typical um, number nine, sort of uh, very sort of in, direct in behind. Well, I wasn't a traditional centre-forward number nine, but I was very greedy, very sort of um, goal-driven, goal-focused, and, and, and that's what I do now as well. Um, and we'll come to that. And um, just, just going back to earlier in your career, you, you got some England recognition with the under-21s. What, what was that mm. experience like for you? I mean, it, it was just incredible. I mean, I was in um, League One, <coughs> excuse me, equivalent of League One at the moment. So to be called up into the under-21s, and I was with the likes of Phil Neville and David Beckham, who was a year um, below me. He was playing up a year. So I played with Beckham and, and um, Julian Joachim and uh, Noel Whelan, you know, players who were playing in, in much bigger clubs than I was at. So it was a huge, huge honour. And it was in some ways, you know, overwhelming. And um, we went out to the Toulon tournament and I think we got through to the quarterfinals or semifinals and got knocked out um, by um, by Brazil in the end. And, um, you know, it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And um, I look back now and some of the team sheets of, you know, the teams we played against. We played against Brazil and, and Janinho was in that team. We played against France and Roberto Perez was in that team. So when I look back, I didn't know at the time, you know, it was a really incredible experience. And talking of experiences, you, you went on to become a manager and, and one of those clubs was was Brentford and um, you also managed at Dover and Staines, uh, non-league, didn't you? What, um, what was the, the management experience at Brentford like for you? Um, at Brentford, it was it was a great experience, really um, good good experience. Took over a team that was <laughs> just had a period of poor form, but um, we were riding high in the the League Cup um, uh, and not the League Cup, sorry, the Johnson's Paint Trophy, and managed to get to the final. So I was lucky enough to lead Brentford out at Wembley as a manager, and um, you know that was a great experience. But 
Um, the the experience as a manager, although I enjoyed it and it was um, it was um, it was really good in terms of a learning curve for me growing up and being you know coming from the dressing room to you know the boardroom and then the the manager's office. It actually took me away from just that that uh, dressing room and playing experience, which was invaluable for me as I, I sort of came out of football. Um, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't fall in love with being um, a manager on the, the touchline. I found that the roller coaster of it um, sometimes um, just it wasn't as enjoyable as I, I wanted it to be, possibly. And so I decided that it probably wasn't for me long term. And, and just um, bringing you up to the uh, what you're doing currently we'll, we'll come to your your own business in a moment but um your your stepson jake forster kasky plays at charlton now um and i was reading that he decided to take your surname um that that was his choice i gather um as a as a parent as his stepdad how how did you you know how did you feel when he made that decision to do that yeah, I mean, Jake was under no pressure to do that. And that was a decision that he he chose. And, you know, from, from a step parent's point of view, that's, that's a humbling thing. And, you know, we've we've been a family now for over 20 years. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're, we're an integral group as, as, a, as a family, all of us. And so um, the fact that, you know, I've got three stepchildren, you know, I don't look at it like that, really. We've got um, my, my own little boy, Fred, as well, and we are a unit together. So, um, you know, it was incredibly humbling and um, I didn't take it uh, for granted and I still don't today. Um, but um, not only Jake as well, um, there's two others that um, decided sort of to, to embrace myself like that. And um, I, I'm truly, as I say, honoured that they did. And in terms of your influence with, with Jake, obviously he's gone into the the pro game uh, as you did um what what's your where's the balance between your football influence on, on jake as he was growing up um and as a as a parent as a stepfather where, where, where's the balance there is a very fine balance there's a fine line between what i can say um uh, especially you know whether step parent or parent um sometimes the advice that you get from the ones closest to you are the ones you you don't like do you know what I mean so um at times I'm careful what I say to Jake um but Jake generally is is very honest with himself so he appraises himself post game really well and says I, I I don't think I did well enough or I did well enough and he's he's really honest about that which is something that I always did with myself and um, Jake, to be fair, man manages and micromanages himself really, really well. And I'm always impressed with the way that he's dealt with things. And recently he's had a real tough blow with a, a, a long-term knee injury just as he came to the end of the season and he was out of contract and looked like on the verge of getting a, a really nice contract either at, at Charlton or somewhere else. And then he's had a long-term knee injury. So that's a really tough thing for him psychologically to accept, um, not only the, the actual injury, so we won't be able to play, which is fundamentally what we all want to do as players, but also the, the loss of income, the loss of earnings. And, and there's no doubt about it, you have got to try and maximise your earning potential as a player because the narrow window that we have as a career um, means that, that that has to be the way. 
But um, the way he's dealt with that blow has been um, really, really impressive. And his mindset has been incredibly strong. And, and you've just mentioned mindset. And obviously, as a, as a striker, um, a lot of it is to do with, with confidence um, mm. as well as a, ability. Um, and how are you passing on the type of confidence that you had as a player in the work that you're doing now? So tell us a, a bit more about what you do and and how that all works. Well, I, I now I do coaching, mindset coaching. I do confidence coaching. I do sort of motivational speaking. And I am, um, I call myself the goal setting coach. And that's what I do. So I go into uh, companies or um, teams or, or individuals, one-to-one -one coaching. And I help them either in, in either in business or in sport or whatever they're looking to achieve. I help them to achieve that. So mindset is a, a huge, huge part of that mark nowadays, you know, and, and no more so than over this last coming up for two years when we are, have had this unprecedented time with, with the coronavirus. You know, I think it's taken its toll on lots of us. And I, like many, have got to almost start again. And, and we were speaking about this off camera in terms of um, before you go in in front of an audience, before you go in front of a crowd, before you go in front of a boardroom, or if you are doing a talk in your office, it's almost like we've got to relearn those skills now. And, um, you know, confidence and um, your, your ability to keep improving yourself are going to be fundamental because it's easy to to let the anxiety, let the issues that um, create self-doubt come crashing in. But um, it's, it's all about improving ourselves just bit by bit, day by day, not looking at to improve yourself against other people. It's just about improving ourselves. Well, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us. It's been, been great to have you on the, on the show and um, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Mark, it's absolute pleasure and um, I'll hopefully do it again soon. If anyone wants to reach out to me, they can. And um, I have a website, nickyforster.com, then uh, it'd be great to hear from people. So Harry Harris, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. Yes, uh, my pleasure, Mark. Pleasure uh, to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. And, and um, you, you've been a football writer for national newspapers for, for many years, of course. Um, and, and you you got a, a, a reputation for um, breaking some, some big stories. So I'd like to start off by asking you, firstly, is it all important to be the first to, to a story, do you think? And, and, and how do you go about doing that? Well, yes, I always thought it was important to be first, and I still think it is, really. Um, although in the modern era with um, new technology and the online offerings, you, you could be first for about three seconds these days. But um, uh, at the height of my career, you know, going back a little while now, um, you know, you, you didn't have any of, of these smartphones or, or the internet offerings. And, you know, it, it was vitally important to be first because... Um, and not only that, to, to, to keep it very confidential because you had a really good 24-hour lead-on period and when the paper came out next morning, it had an enormous impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, if I can take you back to what you think are, are some of your, your best stories in, in all your time as a football writer, what, what would some of those be that people might remember? Oh, I think uh, there'd be quite a few, but um, I, I think, you know, breaking the story about Paul Merson 
taking um, drugs and um, uh, the ramifications of that. The first football ever to confess to that. Um, the investigations into what happened with Terry Venables at Spurs and the uh, ensuing DTI criminal cases that followed that. Um, uh, Kenny Dalglish being sacked at Newcastle would have been appointed on the, on the same day. Uh, it was quite an amusing story. That won, won awards. And of course, Kenny Dalglish picked up the Daily Mirror and saw that on the front page as well as the back page and everywhere else in the paper. And he was on his way to training. He stopped his car. Um, and asked the chairman if it was true, and the chairman said, you better come see me in my office. So that was quite um, uh, an amusing story. So, um, yeah, there's been, there's been, there's been many. Um, Roy Keane coming back from the World Cup early. Um, it was quite uh, interesting at that time because uh, it was the first time I, I suggested that because of all the new technology and the, and the way the media was, was transforming itself, I'd be better served uh, covering the World Cup from here rather than out of the other side of the world. And, and, and that obviously clearly was an advantage because um, while, while everyone was asleep at the World Cup, uh, I, I was in discussion with people who were telling me that Roy Keane was about to get up in the morning and come home. So um, there's been varying degrees of different stories over a period of time, but those are the ones that stick in my mind. And is it is it a lot to do with, with contacts and those relationships that you have with those contacts? Oh, yes. I mean, they're built up over many, many years and, um, you know, many stories that people have told me over those uh, time I've never, ever published. And it's that kind of trust that you have to um, grow and people need to uh, have that trust in you. But uh, they know they can tell you various things at the end of the conversation. They must say, oh, really, I shouldn't have told you that. Don't put it in the paper and I wouldn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's... That's the, the um, essence of, of, of the way I operated. It was it was on the basis of trust. Um, uh, and you you mentioned back page and front page. Sometimes you see football stories, of course. Uh, and if you think back to some, you know, of the previous England squads and the England managers, there was a feeling that there was the you know the the, the football stories, and then there were some of the other stories about the managers. Were there were there kind of two sets of journalists where you you had the, the football focus with, with some of the, the journalists and some of the football writers, and then there were also journalists who were looking for the other stories as well? Yeah, I mean, that uh, the, the media mushroomed over a period of time and um, um, football in particular was so high profile, particularly with the Premier League and uh, the amount of coverage on TV. Um, that it spawned interest on the front pages, you know, footballers' uh, marital um, meanderings and their, their sex lives and their clubbing and what they got up to uh, invariably made the front page, you know. Um, uh, Paul Gascoigne and his antics and the dentist chair were front page news. It was um, hilarious that um, you were able to see this because of the also new technology, people had these uh, smartphones and were able to take pictures of, of all sorts of things going on in, in, in what usually was privacy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, front page, it, and, and it hasn't stopped, it's become more relentless now. And I'm looking in the, in the background and, and I can see a, a picture of Rude Hullet there. Who were some of the, um, the players that you, you dealt with, the high profile players that, that you got on really well with? 
Well, we uh, got on very well. We started at the very top. Um, uh, the, uh, Palais, uh, I, I knew him very well, know him very well, uh, and, and, and wrote one of the first books about him many, many years ago uh, with, with his approval. Um, I've met and interviewed Diego Maradona, um, Johan Cruyff, Glenn Hoddle, George Best, I wrote his last book. So um, I'm just really starting from the top. And, and that brings me nicely to, to my next question. And you've obviously worked with some of the biggest names in, in football, of course, and on various projects. And you mentioned books there. Uh, tell us about some of the, the, the projects that, that you've worked on recently with, with ex-players and, and, and what you're doing now. Uh, well, <clears throat> my latest books uh, are um, one on Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, he's 80 this year, coming at the end of the year. So I've interviewed 80 people about him, uh, all, all manner of different levels from celebrities to you know, players that played under him, players against him, pundits, um, but all that have a story to tell about him. And the majority of them are untold stories and they're most, mostly very amusing. Um, and it was serialized in the Times this week. Uh, there was a page serial about it. Uh, even though it doesn't come out to October, um, the pre-sales are available now and hundreds of people are taking advantage of that and it's, it's selling very well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've also, um, with my wife, uh, written a book with uh, Peter and Steph Shilton called Saved. Uh, that was serialised on, on the news and feature pages of the Daily Mail, uh, Saturday and Monday, um, yet to be featured on the sports pages, but that's coming up. Um, so it's a very different book, you know, for the first time you get a perspective of, of the um, players or, or anyone's partner talking about uh, addiction and, and the perils of it and what it's like to live with it. And, and that takes it to a very different level. It, it's quite an inspiring book and it's meant to be <coughs> inspiring to help other people. All right, Harry, well, well thank you ever so much for, for your time. Really great to speak to you. and. Um... Be uh, be great if you uh, would like to come back on again at some point in the in the not too distant future. Mark, it'd be my pleasure. All right, thank you, Harry. Thank you. And now it's time for a look at women's football this week. And unfortunately, Sherelle's not with us. Um, she's uh, a little bit unwell, so we'd like to wish you uh, get well soon, Sherelle, and um, look forward to speaking to you again next week. But looking at the WSL, um, all eyes were on Chelsea at the start of the season. Lindsay Hooper, I think, in the first episode of the Early Doors Football Podcast, she predicted Chelsea would win the WSL this year. Sherelle also predicted Chelsea would win the WSL this year. So I think it was a bit of a surprise that they lost their first game 3-2 at Arsenal. But of course, they've returned to winning ways in emphatic fashion with a 4-0 win at home to Everton on Sunday. And we also had another win for Arsenal, um, a 5-0 win for Brighton at Birmingham and Spurs beating Man City 2-1 in slightly controversial fashion. It has to be said, um, Man City not, not happy with the referee's decision for the winning goal for that one. So where does that leave us? Well, Brighton and Hove Albion, top of the table with six points. 
seven goals for, no goals against from their two games. So all the teams played two games so far. Arsenal also on two wins from two games with a plus five goal difference. Man United and Spurs also with two wins from their first two games. And at the bottom of the table after two games, we have Leicester City, Birmingham City, Reading and Everton yet to register a point. So looking ahead to this weekend's fixtures coming up, we have on Saturday, Everton at home to Birmingham, Chelsea, very interesting game at Man United on Sunday. Reading will be hoping for their first point at Spurs on Sunday. Uh, the top of the table side, Brighton and Hove Albion, they're at home on Sunday to Aston Villa. And two more games on Sunday, West Ham at home to Leicester and Arsenal at home to Man City. So I think once we've had the three games, then things will start to take shape. And then Shiro will be back next week, catching up on the championship and other women's football as well. And I know that she's uh, very excited because we've got a special guest from the WSL next week. It's Sophie Harris of Leicester City, goalkeeper. Um, so we're very much looking forward to that. So that's a roundup of women's football for this week. Sorry, Sherelle isn't with us. Uh, and we hope you get well soon, Sherelle. So now it's time for football fans from around the world. And I'm joined by Joy Singh, who is a Manchester City supporter in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, Joy. Uh, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, and Joy, I understand you're, you're part of a, an official Manchester City supporter group in Vancouver. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, and what's the name of that? It's uh, Vancouver, uh, Man City fans, Vancouver. Um, and you, you've been a fan, you, you told me, uh, you've been a fan since 2010. Um, so I just wanted to to ask you about that. And, and people might sort of see when you started supporting Man City and, and think, well, it's the, the ownership of the club. But actually, you, you told me that that isn't the case. Yeah, so I've grown up in India and football is not a big thing there. It's all about cricket. Uh, so we live for cricket and that's what I used to watch when I when I was growing up. But uh, I had a very good friend who was a big uh, soccer fan and um, he was a big Manchester United fan. So he start, he told me that let's just, just start watching football and you'll forget about cricket. And uh, just to piss him off, I started supporting City because he used to hate City. So that's how I went into supporting City and the uh, rest is history. So um, I never looked back. <laughs> yeah, And, and, and I you, got emotionally involved with City after that. And yeah, it, it just happened, yeah. And you, and you mentioned there, um, obviously, <clears throat> in a big cricket country. And I just wanted to ask you, in, in Vancouver and, and Canada in general, is there a, a, a lot of support for football, a lot of football fans? For English Premier League, definitely there is. There, so there is a Chelsea supporters group, there's a Manchester United supporters group, and every every supporter group have their respective pubs, so where they meet and uh, watch all the games. So yes, English Premier League is a big thing in Vancouver. Uh, and obviously, some 
amazing success for, for Man City in the last 10 years or so. But what's been your favourite moment in, in that time? My favourite season was the, when we beat Liverpool, the 98-99 season. Uh, when, we, when we just won from uh, one point. And uh, it was the best season. That was the highlight. So when Liverpool gave us great competition, we still uh, managed to win the league. And uh, second time, it was a record. Uh, I don't know when uh, United won after 20 years, this thing. I, I'm, not a, I'm not sure about the years, but it was uh, after a long time that uh, the team won. Um, they were able to defend the trophy. Uh, and who's your, who's your favourite player in the time that you've been supporting Man City? And, and Kevin De Bruyne. No, no question about that. <laughs> I'm a big, big fan of Kevin De Bruyne. I think he's the best in the world for me. Uh, and, th and then finally, Joy, if I could ask you um, where you think, you know, how, how the season will, will go and, and where you think Man City will, will finish. I think the see, uh, all, all the competitors have become really strong. Chelsea with Lukaku and uh, they have, obviously they have Ronaldo now in United. <laughs> I think the competitors have grown strong, but I guess we have the best manager. We have a great squad. The only thing I think we we could have had a better number nine, but uh, I think we'll be able to. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We have a great manager, and I'm uh, in full with the manager. We have full trust what, in that. Yeah. What are your thoughts about not um, signing Harry Kane? sucks to be honest <laughs> because we were expecting that to happen uh, more than Jack I, I love Jack Grealish as well but uh, we were desperate for a number nine we don't have a risk uh, an out and out striker and uh, that's that's the position we need to strengthen but uh, it is what it is uh, and, and Joy bef before I let you go um, just want to go back to something you said earlier are, are you are you still a fan of cricket or is it indeed only football now? No, it, it, it's all taken over by football now. I don't even watch cricket at all. All right, Joey. Well, well great to yeah. speak to you. Thanks for your time. R really enjoyed Thank it. You. And uh, um, we'd like to, uh, if, if you'd like to come back on later in the season and, and, and we'll see. Um, so so just, just finally, just give us your, your prediction again for the final position. I, I, I think we'll be on the top. I think so. Just because of the manager and the depth of the squad we have, I think we'll we'll defend the trophy. All right. Okay, Joy, well, yeah. great to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And that was... Football fans from around the world. And that's it for episode five of the Early Doors Football Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on earlydoors at forthenow.co.uk.